I've never seen Ukrainians as united as they're now um, because Ukrainians, they feel threat to their cultural and national identity in general, because Russia basically said that Ukraine should not exist. Ukraine is not a country and Ukrainians do not have a right to speak Ukrainian, to, to be Ukrainian, basically. So the people now are angry. They are angry at that and they just want to fight and they want to show that we are actually a country and we can uh, be united and we can do something. Everybody, not only the army, but everybody. So that is why everybody is volunteering. Hello and welcome to Point of Entry, a podcast created and hosted by the Refugee Center. Today, for the bonus episode, we are going to learn about the situation at the Romanian and Ukrainian border with one of our legal clinic volunteer, Anastasia Mikhailenko. As you are fully aware, if you follow us and the news, Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24, 2022. Today, we will get a first look at the situation. Point of Entry offers an exclusive view into the voices behind the numbers and the policies behind the action. My name is Piotr Bouchard, and I'm the founder of the Refugee Center Legal Clinic, and I'm very excited to be your host for today's episode. I'll be speaking with Anastasia Mikolenko, PhD candidate at Invested Montreal and volunteer at the Refugee Center Legal Clinic, Ukrainian native, and at this very moment defending her homeland, Slava Ukraina. Hi, Anastasia. Thank you for being with us today. How are you doing? Hi, thank you for hosting me today in your podcast. I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, excellent. Uh, uh, so can you tell us uh, what borders you've been uh, helping and what you've been doing so far to uh, help uh, people or refugees from Ukraine and, and civilians, I would assume, or even the military? Can you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. So uh, from the be beginning of the war, I went to the border, to the Polish-Ukrainian and Romanian-Ukrainian border, supplying some uh, protective equipment to the Ukrainian army, as many Ukrainians did. Uh, so I was mostly transporting goods from the military shops in Europe to Ukraine, uh, which I was asked for. So that was the main thing. Also, uh, during this time, I was interacting with some displaced persons, giving them uh, legal tips, consultations on where is where to go, the directions. But the main activity was to supply protective equipment. And when you refer to protective equipment, uh, can you clarify a bit uh, what kind of protecting gear you were uh, providing and to whom exactly? Yeah, first of all, bulletproof vests and uh, knee protections, uh, elbow protection, and uh, uh, so on and so forth, uh, thermal visors, everything I, I knew that is needed. So I'm in contact with many volunteers on the ground in Ukraine, and they're passing to me some requests they had from the army, exactly. And so that's what I was doing with my other friends. Did you rent a truck and uh, you were like uh, going around in uh, Romania, Poland or to find a military surplus? How did that go? 
Yeah, mostly it was like that. I found a shop or uh, an enterprise that is selling the things I needed. And I went there to this point to buy those things. I collected money previously. I bought the things. And then either I did have a car so I could drive it to the border or I just used the trains. <laughs> so, the trains? <laughs> yeah, so that's how it was. Uh, Bec- yeah, go ahead. Because it was faster than ordering from the from the enterprise itself. Uh, otherwise, it would take several weeks uh, to deliver the order. And uh, in the situation of urgency, it was very important that somebody would be able to deliver it as quickly as possible. And on, just out of curiosity, but uh, like you, you go to a military surplus, let's say in Poland, you purchase uh, elbow equipment, like protective gear or thermal vision, night vision. And um, like you put that in a, in a huge bag and you just hop on the train and go to the nearest uh, uh, like a point of entry to... <laughs> Of uh, you trying to deliver these goods? Yeah, exactly. That that was like that. Yes. <laughs> Must have been quite an experience. Definitely. Yes, definitely. I feel like I'm a master of logistics right now. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure they are hiring at the moment. So <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that, uh, I mean, I mean, the Ukrainian army for logistics. It's very important, as we have seen in the news. Russia had major logistic issues. Uh, Uh, when it came to their equipment, they did not have a, a, a lot of um, support. And I think they had trucks uh, uh, jammed and, you know, like tanks jammed because they couldn't get uh, fuel, for example, or they even uh, steal a lot from the people in the, uh, in Ukraine, from what we've seen in the news. Uh, but uh, at the, what you've seen, uh, Uh, were, were there a lot of split families? Like, uh, what was the, I would say, like the atmosphere at the border when you arrived? Because uh, I understand you were living nearby in Poland. Um, and can, can you tell us, like, were there many people? Like, how, what was the, the atmosphere like? Yeah, I was in Romania as well, but in Romania, there were less people than in Poland. Um, in Poland, there were several shelters in big cities, in Krakow and in Warsaw, where there are more than 200 people in the administrative buildings, uh, Polish administrative buildings. They were living there with families. And also on the border, there are several shelters. There are several tents organized by international organizations that are uh, given, uh, given shelter to people for a couple of days just to have them settle to understand where they're going next. In terms of uh, family separation, of course, this is a big issue because uh, currently, according to the Ukrainian re- legislation, men are not allowed to leave the country. So 90% of uh, Ukrainian uh, displaced persons are women with children. So yeah, definitely lots of them, they didn't want to leave Ukraine. They wanted to resettle to the Western areas just to be close to their husbands, uh, to, to the men and the family. But there are others that were feared of uh, their lives. So they crossed the border. Yeah, like that. And uh, what was the reaction of the Polish population or the Western population in uh, when seeing these these people coming in numbers what was there like the have you witnessed a gesture of uh, goodwill 
uh, from there were people like uh, Polish people and people from Europe in general? Yes, of course. It was actually amazing. We didn't expect such uh, welcomeness from Polish people because on every train station, on the border, everywhere, Polish people were always eager to help. So they established many uh, points, information points uh, on the every like transportation places where you as a Ukrainian, you could just uh, approach uh, somebody. Usually they are the persons with the best, uh, with volunteers in the internet. So you can just uh, approach them and ask them any information you want. And uh, so it is not only on the uh, level of uh, Polish people, but also on the level of government. So it works in sync. Um, the Polish and Romanian governments, they lifted uh, their payment for uh, public transportation for Ukrainians. So you don't need to buy bus tickets or train tickets. You just need to show your Ukrainian passport to get uh, a free ride. <laughs> and Which you probably did for uh, the transportation of uh, uh, equipment uh, or... Yeah, usually I was trying to explain that I was living in Canada, so I'm not affected, so I can pay, but they insisted. Yeah, okay, that... oh yeah, that's nice of you. But they didn't have this regulation, so if I show a Ukrainian passport, there is no way for me to pay, even if I want to. <laughs> okay, okay, wish it was more like that sometimes in my life, you know, but uh, anyways. <laughs> uh, so did you add, did you receive on military equipment list some specific some specific gear that was required uh, for like let's say bulletproof did it tell you we need specifically smith and wesson uh, bulletproof or something like that now they usually ask for a full plus level of protection of nato standards and uh, but they differ uh, in reality. So some of them are resistant to, to the shots, some of them not. So every, every bulletproof vest like this has to be tested on the border. So we tested it and uh, it went through. Okay. So we decided all, you... <laughs> yeah, not to use them for army. <laughs> yeah, Anastasia, uh, we've seen in the news a lot of uh, prisoners of war, both from Ukrainian who took Russian prisoners and the other way around. Um, have you heard uh, what's going on on that front? Like, do you know where they transport prisoners of war, uh, the Russians, or have you ever heard about it? Uh, yes, um, although this information is uh, a little uh, underground information, uh, they uh, security services of Ukraine, they usually uh, publish the intercepted conversations of Russians with their families. And in those conversations, some of the Russians, they're telling their like mothers and wives what they're going to do with Ukrainian prisoners of war, like cutting their fingers, their legs, uh, doing all sorts of torture. And uh, from what we know right now, there are many prisoners of war in the occupied territories of Ukraine by Russia because there are some villages, cities, they're under siege basically. And uh, there are places where those uh, uh, Ukrainian soldiers are, um, get, are just uh, gathered and basically tortured. That's mm. what we know for the moment. Do you know if any of them have been released uh, in exchange of uh, Russian prisoners or? 
Yes, there were people who, who have been released and uh, uh, recently, not long ago, I think one month ago, we've seen uh, photos of uh, women in the army and uh, they had no hair. So basically they're shaved uh, by Russian army. We, we don't know about tortures because this information is a little like uh, secret. Sensitive, oh no, of course, uh, for, of course. For the moment. Uh, it's just usually, uh, you know, in wars, uh, usual, usually, in quote unquote, usually the uh, prisoners of war, the mentality is to treat them fairly because there are other guys on from, you know, like the, so that's the, that's the mentality, don't mistreat prisoners because they have prisoners from our guys too. So, and that's mentality, but with um, the Russian army, it seems that that doesn't apply at all. And they really, have, it seems that they really have this mentality that Ukraine, Ukraine belongs to them. And uh, you know, when you I hear you talking about the women being shaved, it's the same kind of treatment uh, that um, uh, the French women received for having supported the like or having a relationship with the, someone from Germany back in those years. That's what they did to them. So. It seems that the, although it's sensitive, it, I see that the propaganda toward, you know, the denazification of Ukraine is uh, like, that's what they did as the mentality. So that is awful uh, what we've seen. And uh, among all the, the cities that have been taken from, uh, do you have relatives who's, who've been under Russian control at the moment? Or is it uh, at least, are they all safe or? I mean, I have relatives in, in different parts of Ukraine and uh, my grandma, she's living in the territories that has been occupied by Russia for the last eight years, basically. So, and in this zone, they're also torturing Ukrainians uh, because they're transporting them from Ukrainian territories to those unrecognized territories. And uh, we don't know what's going on there because uh, OSC is uh, banned by Russia to be there. Uh, they basically uh, shot several cars of OSC, so we don't have any independent observance. No information from these. Yeah. Can you repeat the name or, or, of the uh, of these uh, international observant or observant? Uh, OSC, Organization of Security, and uh, just a second. Okay, okay. <laughs> just because I, I wasn't sure I got that uh, word uh, or I mean this acronym. Yeah, that's Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Um, so Thank they're you. basically present uh, during all these eight years in the occupied territories, just documenting the war crimes, uh, as well as like UN observant and other international organizations. Uh, basically, Russians allowed them to be present there for a number of years, and now they just all of a sudden, they decided they don't want any, any international observance at the site. Yeah, oh my God. That must be uh, uh, that must be so awful. Um, so, Anastasia, can you tell us where you're from in Ukraine? Originally, I was born and raised in the eastern region of Donbas, in a small city Gorlivka, uh, which is now and during the last eight years was occupied. Um, so, but I was studying in uh, in Kharkiv, which is a different part of you, like different city, which was under a Ukrainian government. Um, 
So yeah, I my family moved out uh, from Horlivka from the my native city after uh, 2014. So there were also internally displaced people. Uh, so Bacha was destroyed. Yes, uh, Bucha, Irpin, Bucha. Uh, Mariupol, but it's the uh, eastern Ukraine part. Uh, basically, in in the central Ukraine and uh, in capital. There is still infrastructure. Everything is going on. People are working. There is a possibility to come back. There is a possibility to to keep going. So a lot of people, they just want to work, earn money, and at the same time to volunteer to help those who are in need. Wow. That is surprising in a way, you know, because I would have imagined that they would have not want to go back. Or maybe not now. I would have waited until this uh, Russia is completely... um, like destroyed, I would say, or I mean, out of the Ukraine. So do you have relatives who made that decision or do you have like people in your family who are still in Ukraine or do you have a... Yeah, I have lots of friends who are in Ukraine right now. My family, my parents, they were living in Kharkiv. It's eastern Ukraine. It's it's being constantly bombed right now by Russia. So they fled. They were volunteering for the first two weeks. And then when the factory closed, where they were like producing the elements for the army, uh, this factory closed and they decided that there is not much to do anymore. And they decided to, to leave. And they left to to Vilnius, to Lithuania. But like other parts of my family, they're also in eastern Ukraine in the city called Bakhmut, which is close to um, occupied regions of Russia since 2014. They have stayed because uh, that's my uncle who is serving at the police, so they cannot leave. Whoa! Okay, you have a you have a, a, an uncle who is a police officer in the in the. I, ba, what, can you repeat the name? It's uh, Bakhmut. Bakhmut, okay, all right. Yes. So in that town, any uh, which is near the the occupied zone, uh, um, he, as it, uh, do you speak with him or? Yeah, I speak. I speak to him constantly, and uh, right now they are terrified because uh, Russia announced the plan to invade all the Donetsk and Luhansk region, which is basically the town where they're situated. So it's kind of difficult situation. So we are monitoring closely what's going on. We are trying to, to get some supplies to them, to this region. So they have all the bulletproof vests, all the things they need uh, to fight. Uh, so yeah, we are just waiting now. Okay, okay. Uh, I have another question for you at the Refugee Center. We've been helping uh, people from Ukraine. We have, a, we did a few, uh, quite a lot of visas, and uh, also uh, we have like a lot of grandmothers to have a regular status in uh, Canada who arrive near in the few days at the beginning of the invasion. So we have helped them with that, and one of the families that arrived the. the because they're split families and they told me uh, we are waiting for news because our by the husband the father was at war uh, and as far as you know do you know if the government of ukraine can inform them if a relative unfortunately passes away during a conflict like do they record that in a way so they can uh, uh do, do you know about it because I, I was like I, they don't know they they have a all they know is that the zones are labeled like hot and not and warm. You know they have like a code, and he said we know it is in the hot region at in that place. But 
they didn't know nothing else. Uh, so I just wonder if you have any ways of uh, knowing if the government uh, informs. Uh, uh, in general, the government is required to inform uh, the, the relatives of the deceased people, but uh, the problem right now is that it's such a mess everywhere. Uh, so the best way to learn what's going on with your relative, it's a world, world of mouth, basically, asking, okay. asking the friends of that person and uh, trying to be in touch with somebody who is close to him, because like it can be some delays with the informing about the situation on the forefront. Because one of the, I'm asking this because one of the issues that we had when we uh, were filling uh, visas with uh, families, with children uh, at a, of a young age, uh, the government of Canada kept on asking for the consent of the other parent for the child to travel abroad. And, the, and all of the women told us that like, it's not gonna take, it's gonna take some time because they said, it's not as simple as, uh, hey, where are you? Can you sign this? Uh, it's not a, um, it wasn't easy. So, but we managed, we managed uh, by, because uh, it, I told them, I see it, I saw it coming when we were filling the forms. And I said, it's always a requirement to avoid tra child trafficking. So I would doubt that. So, and they raised the question, how do, they said to me, we don't know if he's alive yet. And as you can imagine, this bear a lot of emotion. So that's uh, that's why I wanted to know if there's a if there was a way, uh, a legitimate way of knowing if somebody passes away on the front line, uh, for the families abroad to know. It's just so, you uh, have to send an official request to the to the Ministry of, of Defense. Okay. Ukraine. Okay. Also, do you plan on returning to uh, Ukraine, or have you yourself got into the country of Ukraine? And you know, since everybody was going, did you say oh, I'm going to? Or no? No, I'm planning to return in a couple of weeks uh, because okay. I, yeah, I needed to, to settle some some things here, and yeah, of course, I'm going to. Go I, I would imagine, <laughs> yeah, yeah, rent and uh, bills don't go away <laughs> that easy. So, uh, uh, but it's interesting that um, you uh, you went to the borders, and I understand you did humanitarian help too. Uh, can you tell us what kind of help you did? Yes, uh, basically. I did mostly uh, supplies uh, for army because that's the major problem right now because a lot of people are going to uh, defend the country and they don't have equipment, protective equipment. So our job with other volunteers was to find this protective equipment, thermals, wizards, uh, bulletproof vests, uh, shoes, all the things they need. So. We were going around all the in all the military shops in Romania and in Poland. We were buying all things we could, and then we were. I was transporting them. So basically, I was taking a car. You drove a truck. Driving, the... not, not really a jeep, but yeah, I was driving the the jeep to the border, and then I was giving uh, to this to the hands of people who are needing them. Because transportation companies, they're not that reliable right now, and uh, if you want the person you know to get uh, the equipment you brought you need to do it personally so that so, you make so sure you were good business for uh, army supplies and all in the romania and uh, it's a good idea to invest in that kind of shop i guess uh, these days uh, around uh, russia uh, do you know um when you bought stock did you add any kind of specifics that you needed like for example were they asking uh, 
we need uh, Smith and Wesson type of bulletproof because the Russian have uh, this kind of uh, a bullet that can pierce other types of like. Did you have some kind of a shopping list very precise on what type of equipment you needed, or you just yes, yes, of course I had a list with the things that I need to buy. Actually, I brought from Canada eight bulletproof vests, really? but yeah. yeah, they were on a level four plus defense and NATO standards. But when I brought it to Ukraine, uh, we kind of tried it with the with the army. We tried to uh, like to, to shot at this bulletproof vest with AK forty seven, and it was uh, like pierced through. Uh, so. Yeah. We understood that these bulletproof vests, they are not good for the soldiers, right. but they're okay for volunteers or for other people who are just uh, passing through the areas. So that's how we learn actually what, what we need. We learn it. Well, okay, get the, you learn it. Okay. That kind of uh, try and learn. <laughs> try yeah. and see it as well. Yes. Because what I, what I know uh, about the equipment of like Russians is, you know, the, the AK-47 is pretty deadly uh, type of, uh, and it's pretty strong caliber. So it was like, you're going to need some serious uh, bulletproof because uh, it's uh, you normally not uh, that effective. And uh, you, when you arrived, you said you gave it to people there. It was not to the military directly. You gave it to militias or how did that work? To military directly, actually, because I know people from, from the military. So across the border, I found uh, the volunteers who are transporting that okay. to the border, or I gave it directly to the military units who were sent already to the eastern part of Ukraine. So um, I gave it to them, and they were sent right away with those equipment. <laughs> what a what a trip that must have been. Uh, and can you? Uh, you said uh, by your your native from Ukraine. Can you tell us which region again you're from? Uh, I'm from eastern region of Ukraine. I'm from uh, Donbas, basically from the area which was occupied by Russians since 2014. Okay. And your family still lives there, or like I know you spoke about uh, a few, like the the relatives the closest. They they are not in that region, but you still have other family members. Yeah, basically. Almost all my family, they left the region when the war started eight years ago. Okay. And now they're fleeing again. So that's the, they're a second time displaced persons, which is not really easy for them, to be honest. Oh, boy. And how, speaking of the, this element, like uh, they, they, they're going in different areas, how do they feel about the people coming back in? The, like, do, do they have, they say, no, you, I would have gone out or do they enter, do they know that people are coming back uh, to Ukraine? And if so, uh, do they, um, do they feel like uh, it, it's something bad or? Um, no, I, I don't think so. Like everybody is praising people who are going back. Uh, but on the one hand, it's, it's good because like they, they can provide some help. On the other hand, if people are going back to the regions with a like, hot situation, they're not given the opportunity for the army to do their job because the army cannot shell everywhere because there are like citizens at homes. So for the army, it's preferable that uh, all the Ukrainians leave Ukraine for some time, leave the cities. So that residential areas would not be a problem for them uh, while fighting with Russians. Okay. So. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, so uh, uh, 
at the moment, when you, uh, I think at the beginning, you mentioned you were there for three weeks. For almost a month, I think, right? more than four weeks. Yeah. And when you arrived, uh, uh, how were people reacting? Because I'm assuming when you arrived, people were still getting out of Ukraine. Yeah, actually, what, what people exactly? People on the border? Like, uh, uh, the refugees, the people who escaped when you arrive, uh, so you must have seen a lot of people going out and then you saw them go back in. Uh, and when they were getting out, like how were, were they, um, I would assume they, they were, it was sad, but uh, was there a feeling that, oh, it's not going to last forever? Like, or were they, do you remember yeah, yeah. if they... The, the main the main emotion is a feeling of uncertainty. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, the majority of people who are living in Ukraine, they're having some relatives abroad, so they're coming to them. But also there are some people who didn't know where they were coming. They basically crossed the border and they like started to talk to volunteers and the volunteers, usually from the international organization, they started to provide them with options. There were many guys from Denmark, from Norway, from uh, Belgium. So these are the individuals who are just decided to come to help Ukrainians and they're just taking them from the border and like right away transporting them to the countries where they, they, they do their papers, they help with jobs and stuff. So they're quite a huge help right now on the border. Yeah, uh, I saw that too in Canada that, uh, I mean, to our own extent, don't get me wrong, but uh, it's the first time you could reach somebody on the phone from immigration like super fast. Like you did, they ask you, you have a, there was a, there is I think, still a hotline, you just call and they will, um, and so pretty much right away. And that in immigration, uh, when you help refugees normally, you do not have such a good service from the Canadian authorities. And uh, even when I sent uh, forms, like the website was very difficult to get around to, a, for especially for people inside Canada already. And we, so when I do, don't understand, I just send the paper <laughs> application and they processed it like in a month. I was what? Uh, that was very fast. Uh, and Quebec, because now at the moment, at Con like in the Concordia University uh, slash uh, student uh, community, we have a few Ukrainians who have to renew their permit, but since they cannot get uh, the money as of now, because maybe it will change, but the, the, the they have they had a hard time just justifying their uh, fees the, to their proof of funds, and we called and we tried to know from Quebec government if this was going to change, and, and they said no. So that was surprising, I'll tell you that. So, but maybe now what you're telling me is that if people are going back and like pretty much the center and the uh, the west side Kiev will be okay. Uh, do you think soon the banks will reopen? And like basically, we're like it, it, Russians will only be in the region they kind of already control, and it will kind of stop. I don't have any like I, I cannot say about that. But uh, what you're saying about banks and other infrastructure yeah. things—they're open, they're working, the shops are working in Ukraine. Everything okay. is like is normal. I also met uh, lots of foreigners who are going to have. Kind of holiday in western ukraine right now so oh, really? uh, yeah it's it's okay, uh, 
it's living, it's all right. It's just, yeah, I think that Russia announced the plan just to take back the Donbass region and to take more territories. And that's what they're doing. So basically only Ukrainians who are in Eastern region are under um, immediate threat, but all, also like there were two days ago, Russians, they're shelling at Lviv, which is the city in Western Ukraine. You never know. Uh, what's going to happen but in general there, there is a feeling that there are some more safe regions than others and actually everything is working even in eastern ukraine so the people can go to the banks banks are open even in Kharkiv, even in those cities who are under shelling the pharmacies people try to keep keep the country going it's i would say it's kind of hard to imagine that you know if you because I understand they, there's a chance they will bombard pretty much anywhere in Ukraine. And I mean, it's hard for me to imagine like, oh, we have, it's not happening, but it might happen, but it's not happening. So let's just go back. And let, it's hard for me to imagine that uh, the reasoning is that uh, sort of, uh, is there, do you know what motivates people, Ukrainians to, you know, like uh, face this kind of potential threat instead yeah. of like, is there, what's the motivation behind that? <laughs> That's a great question because uh, I've never seen Ukrainians as united as they're now um, because Ukrainians, they feel threat to their cultural and national identity in general because Russia basically said that Ukraine should not exist. Ukraine is not a country and Ukrainians do not have a right to speak Ukrainian, to, to be Ukrainian basically. So the people now are angry. They're angry at that and they just want to fight and they want to show that we are actually a country and we can uh, be united and we can do something. Everybody, not only the army, but everybody. So that is why everybody is volunteering. I, I don't know any single person who, who doesn't do something to help the country right now. Everybody is buying something, bringing from abroad. Everybody's, uh, I don't know, trying to keep the industries going in Ukraine, businesses, they're opening the cafes. People are going to these cafes just to keep the businesses open. Okay. So that's what's going on, yeah. So that's really interesting. They, you, I'm sure you've heard in the news and maybe you could tell us if the people re in Ukraine or Ukrainians reacted to that, but. Uh, the, the, some government called uh, the invasion a genocide uh, of the Ukrainian population, and from what you're telling me, like that's what that was the, pretty much the feeling Ukrainians had when they they're being told like you don't exist, and we will kind of put an end to that. Um, uh, do you know if Ukrainians are aware that Western countries, some Western countries, have qualified this as genocide? Uh, and if yes, uh, did they react like positively to that or? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's actually, it was Ukrainian initiative, first of all, to qualify it as a genocide because it's not the first time that Russia commits genocide in Ukrainian territory. It was happening in 1932-33, in 1945-46. So that Russian government, Soviet government wanted to extinguish Ukrainians 
and they were, it was Holodomor. So basically they were taking all the food from Ukraine and selling them to the other countries. And they're trying to kill Ukrainians by uh, keeping them hungry, but basically just, just taking all the food they had. And right now, like for Ukrainians, it's obvious that this is genocide because it's not the first time it is happening. And uh, Russians, they're shelling, not at, at military bases, as they said they would, they're shelling at the like uh, at the hospitals, yeah, yeah. at Hospital, the places. Theater. Uh, no, yes. no, I remember the theater in Mariupol. I guess. Uh, yes. That, that uh, no, no, it was a that's a war crime right there. But uh, you know, it's um, and the like. I'm I'm happy to hear that the Ukraine like has. The, I know it was this idea was pushed, and you know, uh, uh, it's it's bad when Russian commit war crimes, but it's it's. It's unbearable, and uh, it, the fact that the West doesn't do anything uh, is kind of uh, deceptive, even from like because it seems this invasion, from a perspective of me, you know, is looking at the news and just regular uh, civilian. Uh, I the Russian army really thought in the beginning they were just gonna walk in and you know that it's done, and they actually lost and they are kind of in the zone that they kind of already controlled to obviously save their face so look we we did something and what we learned is basically none of the equipment kind of worked or it did not you know it did not go well at all and the russian army we we realized it's corrupt organized like it's corrupt from top to bottom so uh, in that sense as a western i'm like why uh, do they represent such a threat if like in their backyard they were stopped like the resistance of the ukraine was uh, very heroic in that sense. and but i mean russia they were they thought and i think the whole world thought it was the end of ukraine if you we go back in time on the around february 24th it's the end and then poof and now as of to what you're telling me is that even though they fear like there is a genocide going on in the minds of Russians, Ukraine, they go back, they fight, they want to keep their system alive, obviously. And so I was surprised that the West, like after realizing, okay, all we have to do is pay the guy in charge of the nukes and ask him, how do they work? Give us the plan, neutralize that, and that's it. It's a done deal. I was like, okay, there's nothing to fear anymore. Everything is like super old. And all you need to do is give them money and it's done. Right? So why aren't we not pushing that more? I don't know. I don't know the secrets of these um, uh, high-ranking uh, and uh, like uh, politicians and whatnot. But and the because Russia is essentially it's a pipeline that leads to Europe and it seems to be the only real reason why it just don't go further than. Uh, uh, in helping Ukraine, which I think uh, the seems that Russia realized that, and it's now that we I hear you, my perspective is kind of a different a bit of the conflict, but I'm I'm very uh, surprised that uh, people go back and try to you know like continue to live and. Uh, uh, you uh, would you go back and just try to live there, or, or are you more concerned with the bombardment? No, I would. Of course, I would go back. And uh, the majority of my friends, they they went already back to Kiev. Um, of course, it's it's not really safe, but. Uh, 
I mean, people of Ukraine, they are ready. They were ready for this war already since 2014 because okay. we, we were living under constant threat and the army was ready. The army was preparing and uh, uh, they're really good soldiers right now. We can see that uh, Ukrainians, they have motivation to fight. Russians, they don't. That's the major problem. Russians, they don't understand what they're fighting for anymore. They lost a lot of people. They acknowledge this. And th this is crazy. So this army is, is unprofessional at its worst. They don't have, they don't stand a chance basically. But the problem is they can, they can still take some regions. They can still do that. And uh, you are right. The West is still supplying Russia with money for the oil. That's the biggest problem uh, currently because they don't want to introduce embargo, total embargo on the Russian oil. And other sanctions, they are working, but they're working, they, they still take time to, to do something to the Russian economy, basically. So, but Ukrainians, they don't have this time because it's bombing no, every, every day. The bullets, no. uh, again, uh, what surprised us and uh, the the russia always bragged about having some kind of special forces and you know like the spetsnads and all these uh, units which we haven't heard anything from uh, on the front line so it's very difficult to understand was the like why russia keeps at it at this point uh, and doesn't do his fake victory like they're so fun fun of uh, like What's the point? Um, I know you, you're not in the secrets of the gods, but if you do, do you think it's gonna Russians are gonna keep continuing attacking, or do you think it's gonna be we'll see an end in 2022 of this uh, conflict? Or they need a little military victory right now. They need to take some more territories that they had before. So that's and they need to do it until May 9th. So they need to present some results to Russian. The problem is that Russians, um, in, in their majority, they support the war. And uh, they, they think that uh, Russia needs to take uh, some Ukrainian territories and just extinguish Ukrainians. And they think that all Ukrainians are Nazis and all of that bullshit. So they're basically, uh, the problem is more than 70% of Ukrainians support, of Russians support that. And that is why they cannot stop at this point and even of course they would provide some fake victory it would be like that but they still want to take as much as they can for the for the moment okay speaking of uh, support of the war uh, from russians uh, uh, this this war is like a 21st century type of war and we've seen the social media uh, kicking in and actually like propaganda uh, in the way that we have now with social media and all that stuff. And at the border, have you seen like Russians trying to send message through uh, telephones or whatnot to say, no, no, uh, you're, we will not arm you. We will not target civilians. Or, or have you have you seen any kind of a Russian pop propaganda firsthand or on the I've seen the photos of uh, Russian leaflets in the occupied regions, not on the border, not in Ukrainian okay. cities, but they were uh, like sending these leaflets to Ukrainians on the occupied ter territories that we are liberating you. Actually, we liberated already your territory and uh, you can be free. You cannot worry about speaking Russian here. 
although it was never a problem for Ukrainians to speak Russian and Russian in, in Ukrainian territories. So the, the problem is that they're trying to put this propaganda on Ukrainian people on in the territories that are um, term, uh, temporarily occupied. So there's a, a southern uh, part of Ukraine, some cities. So it, it's basically the same as uh, Nazi Germans did, uh, like in, uh, is, did during the is. Second World War. They are trying to to spread this propaganda, but of course, people are not. Uh, <laughs> people understand that this is this is not something to to believe in. And the other problem is that uh, from this occupied territory the Russians are sending Ukrainians to Russia. They're basically deporting them and they're uh, employing them at the factories in Russia. They're uh, taking away their phones, their passport, their documents so that these Ukrainians cannot leave Russia anymore. They're creating this informational vacuum where Ukrainians deported in Russia do not have access to the information what's going on in Ukraine. And Russians, they're telling that Okay, Ukraine is invaded already, and uh, if you come back, you will be put in prison because you are kind of traitor because you are now in Russia, and that is why the people are feared right now. And uh, yeah, and there are also a lot of children in Russia, deported children, who are sent to the filtration camps, as Russia say, uh, call, call it. And in these filtration camps, they're um, they're thinking that they're kind of placing people to different regions of Russia. And they already created some camps for children to make them learn Russian language. <laughs> because That's insane. Yeah, and uh, so, th those children- Because I want to clarify that right away, sorry to cut yeah. you. You're saying that in occupied territories, Russians have taken away the population, including children and the split families, and they've put children in camps to kind of Russianize them the, the, in different yeah. regions. That is yeah. insane. Correct, correct. And uh, the more insane part that Russians, the motive of going to the war with Ukrainians was that Ukraine are forbidden people to, Ukrainians are forbidden people to, to speak Russian in their territories. But right now, they are basically deporting people who are so-called Russian speakers but in reality, they don't speak Russian. Russians need to put them in, in the camps to teach them Russian in order to adapt them to the, uh, to, uh, to the new that, that is, uh, that is uh, ridiculous. I was thinking also, uh, we've seen on, on social media, like TikTok, and uh, we've seen a lot of uh, small videos from people uh, who are taken prisoners of war. And I wanted to know, uh, like, have you seen a lot of prisoners of war from Russia in Ukraine, like kind of saying, I don't want to go back to Russia or uh, have you witnessed anything or any mistreatments of prisoners or something like that? Or was it still like? Uh... Mm -hmm. Personally, me, I haven't seen them because I'm not in the military. I don't have access to them. But I heard stories from people who are in the in the army. They're saying that um, there are more and more Russians who are um, who, who are just refusing to to fight, who are coming to Ukraine, who are saying, okay, it's it's better for me to to be held hostage than, than to to uh, to be pushed to fight. And also, there is a, a Russian international Russian legion 
the organization that are uh, gathering people who want to fight on the side of Ukraine against Russians. <laughs> so th there are these developments as well. Oh, the Russians would go the other way, like they go with, oh, really? That's interesting. Well, I, we've seen like a, a battalion of BLO Russians uh, in the news. Um, at the refugee center, we are having a lot of people from Belarusia and Russia were like, I don't support a I don't want to go back there because I tweeted that it's not an inv it's not a um, military special operation, it's an invasion. He, the guy told me I got 15 years for that. So uh, uh, he wants to be a refugee in Canada, but we've seen a, a wave of sympathy from Russians, uh, at least in Canada, to like, no, no, we don't support that at all. And we don't want to go back to Russia. And that, what what's, I, I've seen that the Russian soldier, I mean, uh, we're kind of okay where we don't want to fight, but do you know of the treatment of uh, Ukraine soldiers who get uh, detained by um, uh, by by the people from uh, well, from the invaders? You know, like from the Russians. Have you heard like if they execute them or if they also put them in a camp uh, or? We don't have this information for the moment. No. I mean, okay. we we know that from 2014, we know that what Russians did to like Ukrainians because they thought they're kind of net Nazis and uh, they're torturing them. We had this information, but for now, uh, it's not like uh, public uh, information so okay. that we okay. can share or no. We, we just know what Russians did um, in the Kiev region, as you probably saw in uh, medias, like uh, when they left the region, they raped women, they raped children, they yeah. just killed them, tortured them. So that's what they know, uh, what, what, what we know right now, because we have evidence about uh, Ukrainian soldiers, we don't have information. It's just the, the only one thing that we, we know for sure, uh, when they, they took uh, women from Ukrainian army, they just cut their hair, um, in Russia, and uh, they tortured them somehow, but we, we don't know the details. Okay. Like they did to women who were supporting Nazis in the in the in the forties, and that's what they used to do. They shaved their head. Uh, to one of the, mm -hmm. they, they collaborated with the enemy. That's what they did. It's crazy that we talk about this in 2022, uh, like it's happening for real, and it's insane. Uh, uh, now I would like to know if for people looking to get involved and support Ukraine people arriving, do you have any suggestion that, you know, what kind of help uh, Canadians can do uh, to uh, help Ukrainians to get by this extremely outrageous war? Yeah, first of all, yeah, I, I know that a lot of Canadians, they're sending humanitarian help to Ukraine. I want to say that this is not actually helpful a lot because uh, humanitarian help is going from, uh, from Europe mostly. And here, the best thing to do is to donate, of course, to the charities, but not to the Red Cross, but to the charities who are actually like Ukrainian organization, like Save Life in, uh, in Ukraine.org. This is the, the biggest um, charity, uh, Ukrainian charity. What they're doing, they're buying equipment, or uh, Canadians can also try to find and buy uh, protective equipment for the soldiers. That is what needed the most. They How are do the I same... ship it to them if I buy a nice helmet uh, written on it? <laughs> Not right on it for actually, for actually, 
Canada, right now, they removed all the restrictions to send uh, the military equipment, actually protective equipment, from Canada to Europe or to Ukraine. So, so if you worry, I can just go to the my local army supply and say, give me all your helmets, uh, <laughs> the one that can, you know, work. And I yeah. put them in a box and I say, there you go, Mr. Zeninsky from Canada with Lynn. So <laughs> Kind of like that, but it's better to communicate with local Ukrainian organizations who can actually accept this okay. and who can distribute this because so, uh, there is already a chain of supply. Okay, me. great. <laughs> and the, so you say that we don't need to send like uh, codes and, you know, like uh, goods of uh, that, that Europe is taking care of that. It's mainly military equipment that's required, non-lethal, uh, like uh, bulletproof and stuff like that. Definitely, because uh, in Europe, I've been to almost all the military shops in Romania in big cities. There is nothing because Ukrainians already bought everything that, <laughs> that was for sale. So really, Romania, Poland and even Germany, there are like very little things left in these military shops. But uh, in, uh, in, in the US and in Canada, there are still some military tourniquets, Israeli bandages that stop bleeding for the soldiers. Okay. So this is, this is the main thing that, that Ukrainians actually need. So you can buy it, you can send it to like Ukrainian post or Nova Posta. There is a post which is uh, in Canada and just send it. Or, uh, let's see if yeah. I want to do it. Can I just simply uh, send you an email or whatever? Say, hi, Anastasia. Me and my friends, uh, we want to send uh, boots uh, or whatever. Can we bought them? There you go. What do you like? Where do we send that? Uh, we, can we contact you for that? Or of course, definitely, definitely. Okay, I would great, be, great. I would be so happy if somebody contacts me about that. <laughs> we need uh, all the help we can get. Excellent. Uh, no, I, have a few, uh, I, I used to be uh, in the army a long time ago, uh, in the Canadian one, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm like, I, I think I will call a few friends <laughs> who can do that because they're gonna be psyched. So gonna have, uh, they will, I'm sure they will want to participate in that. All right. Uh, so, uh, is there anything else you would like to tell uh, people to for helping Ukrainians? Yeah, sure. Maybe uh, the other thing we need is to pressure the governments for to, to pressure NATO and uh, to pressure the world governments just to uh, to put embargo on any trade with Russia, first of all, and also to supply more to Ukraine, because right now we are all in the army, every Ukrainian, somebody like a lot of our international friends, they're asking, like, but why you need to buy this military equipment? That's the thing that government should do. And we're like, we are all now the government because it's our brothers, our sisters, our friends that are going to the army. So we are those who need to help them because we don't fight, but we have our own front, you know, Yo, <laughs> we try to I mean, do whatever we can. War, it's not, all, it's not just the part of a gun and especially now today, they, I mean, it's just like a front line. You have also the psychological war. You have also the all the humanitarian that goes behind it, and the bombardment are happening pretty much anywhere in Ukraine. So of course, uh, I, I we understand uh, what you mean by that. So, well, thank you. That concludes the episode of Point of Entry. Thank you so much, Anastasia, for joining us today. And uh, we want to know more uh, about Ukraine next time you go and see if the situation evolves for the better. So thank you very much and good luck with your PhD now. <laughs> thank you for having me here. Thank you very thank much. You. Yeah, yeah.